BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome to a very special edition of the Bill Press Pod. Today, we start an exclusive series of podcasts developed with authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And the subtitle is key, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. In this special podcast series on the Bill Press Pod, we worked with the editor and several of those top mental health experts to bring their updated findings to you based on over three years of Donald Trump in the White House. Why now? Well, a couple of reasons. One, because as he desperately fights for re-election, we may be facing the most dangerous point so far in Trump's presidency. And two, because we think it can explain some of Trump's completely irrational behavior lately. His mental capacity is so limited, he can't even take steps that would benefit him in the real world. He's so driven by his own distorted sense of reality that what seems incomprehensible to us makes perfect sense to him in his own warped mind. Now, no doubt you've heard pundits say that Donald Trump's mentally ill, a narcissist, and a toddler. But what you've rarely heard are actual psychiatrists and other mental health experts giving their professional opinions about Donald Trump's mental state. And you know what? There's a good reason for that. It's called the Goldwater Rule. Actually, it's not a rule, but a policy of the American Psychiatric Association. A short history. Back in 1964, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater was the Republican nominee for president. A lot of people thought he might be too willing to use nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union, so a now-defunct magazine asked dozens of psychiatrists to diagnose Goldwater's mental condition, which they agreed was not healthy. Whereupon, Goldwater sued and won. So in response, the American Psychiatric Association adopted what came to be known as the Goldwater Rule, that no psychiatrist should diagnose any public figure without an in-person consultation and the subject's permission. Again, it's not a law, it's only a rule adopted by the American Psychiatric Association some 56 years ago. But as a result, ever since, media outlets, perhaps fearing their own lawsuit, have pretty much refused to publish or broadcast any analysis by any mental health professional about any politician. This suppression of evidence by the American Psychiatric Association and a complicit media is the subject of the second episode of this series next week. But for now, just know that the mental health professionals you'll hear from today and in the weeks to come are risking and have already faced condemnation, harassment, and a virtual blackout in the mainstream media. But they're not afraid. And you know what? Neither are we. One of those daring to speak out is Dr. James Gilligan. 
Dr. Gilligan was on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School and for 13 years was director of the Harvard Institute of Law and Psychiatry. One reason it is so important for all of us here to be speaking out about this is precisely so that Trump will not be confused with a normal president. He is not normal. He is unprecedented in American history. We've never had a president, I would say, as dangerous and, and abnormal as he is. In many ways, I don't think any of us are saying anything that are any different from what many, many people in society recognize. I think all we're doing is saying we're agreeing with them. When you think this guy is not normal, we're saying you are right. He's not normal. He is extremely dangerous, unprecedentedly dangerous. And it's very important that we not accept his behavior as normal behavior, either on the part of a president or any other private individual. Dr. Robert J. Lifton, at the age of 94, is one of the most prominent psychiatrists in America. He's also one of the originators of the field of psychohistory, which is a study of psychological motivations for war, terrorism, and genocide. Dr. Lifton wrote the foreword to the first edition of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump in an essay entitled, Our Witness to Malignant Normality. I asked Dr. Lifton why he and his fellow authors felt compelled to speak out and ask him to explain his concept of malignant normality. The president was profoundly dangerous in his behavior and was unfit for the presidency. I thought it not only the right to, but also the necessity to speak out about psychological manifestations of Trump that were dangerous. And I thought and still feel very strongly that my own work on extremism, on efforts at reality control, or what I call the ownership of reality, which I've written about. In, in some detail in other situations, that this work had direct bearing on Trump and that it was appropriate for me, necessary for me, to speak out and write about it. I emphasized what I call malignant normality. That is a normality that's imposed upon a group, as in Nazi Germany, that can be devastating and murderous and is presented as normal. I'm not saying that Trumpers followers are Nazis, but they create their own malignant normality. And I called upon us to be what I term witnessing professionals, professionals who use our background and knowledge to break through that malignant normality and to combat it and expose it for what it is. Now, the danger of such malignant normality, of course, is that it pervades society to such an extent that we come to accept it as the new normal. That's the warning expressed by Dr. Leonard Glass, psychiatrist on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. It is a malignant pseudo-normality, and some segments of our population are so hungry for a champion, someone who will authentically know everything and do everything be the only one. It's so seductive, and it reminds you of other tyrannical leaders who succeeded in having mass appeal. And there's a kind of suspension of critical thinking on the part of the population who gets sort of swept up in an allegiance. It's as though you're following a baseball team 
or the Dallas Cowboys, and you don't care if your player plays by the rules or not. He's your player. That's what matters. So if Donald Trump says, I don't have to wear a mask, it's a statement of allegiance and alliance with him and his presumed power to not wear a mask because he's our guy. And this added comment by Dr. Bandy Lee, editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump and psychiatrist on the faculty of the Yale Medical School. I believe that that is the reason why expert input into this discourse is so critical, because what is most important to point out, perhaps, is the difference between normality and abnormality. Because the abnormal, when it takes over, just like a pandemic, it can engulf our normal affairs. It can uh, absorb and subsume institutions and entire segments of the population. To believe that mental symptoms are not contagious is, in fact, a fantasy when they do not even require physical exposure to become contagious. And pathological symptoms are are far more contagious. And so uh, there's often even an overturning of reality where the normal becomes abnormal, what's good becomes bad, and what used to be unacceptable is is now what we we all accept. It's important to note that these psychiatrists are not diagnosing Donald Trump nor pretending to. They are instead describing his behavior and warning us that his behavior is dangerous. As I explained earlier, the Goldwater Rule prohibited psychiatrists from diagnosing public figures without having examined them personally. But shortly after Donald Trump became president, the American Psychiatric Association broadened the Goldwater Rule to prohibit its members from even commenting on the mental health of public figures. Why they did that may very well be because of fear of retaliation from the Trump administration. More on that in our next episode. But for now, let's look into the obligation that these mental health professionals feel they have to society and to the public health and safety of all of us. Here again is Dr. Gilligan, Harvard psychiatrist, on what he sees as a higher, more important duty for doctors than the Goldwater Rule. That's not the only one that psychiatrists are expected to follow. There's one that's much more serious, and it actually is a matter of law, not just recommendation, and that is the so-called Tarasov decision, which is a judicial decision saying that psychiatrists have not just a permission, they actually have a positive duty, an obligation to inform people. If they recognize that somebody is dangerous, I have directed prison mental health programs for many years, and I've had many occasions to write uh, letters to people indicating that somebody I had seen was uh, dangerous to them, and I've informed judges and sheriffs and so on. Now, I have a legal obligation to do this. I'd be breaking the law if I did not do it. But let me make another distinction, and that is between clinical psychiatry versus public health and preventive psychiatry. Most psychiatrists are taught to function as clinical psychiatrists, meaning they treat one person at a time, one individual at a time. They don't treat the community or the whole country. What that often results in is psychiatrists tend to underestimate the importance of public health and preventive psychiatry. And what I'm saying is, whereas the Tarasov ruling, uh, narrowly uh, read, applies only to somebody, uh, one individual you've seen at a time, I'd say from a public health standpoint, it's extremely important 
that those of us who have specialized in the study of violence, which all three of us on this program today have done, unlike the vast majority of psychiatrists, that I think we have a special duty to warn the public as a matter of public health and preventive psychiatry, like preventive medicine, when we recognize that somebody is around who is dangerous, is a danger to the public health. And I think there's no question that, that Trump is to an unprecedented uh, degree. Now that we know why these mental health professionals feel compelled to speak out, well, let's look at some of their observations about the mental stability of Donald Trump, starting with his focus on himself above all others. You may have heard that described as narcissism, but renowned Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Robert J. Lifton says it's actually a lot worse than that. I think we're at a really crucial turning point now, and it's dangerous, but it's also hopeful. And what I have in mind is a kind of collapse of Trump's effort at reality control or the ownership of reality. Trump's approach to reality is what I call solipsistic. That's a little different from narcissistic. He's got plenty of that, of course. But solipsistic simply means self-contained. His only reality is the reality of the self, what it experiences and what it needs. In connection with such large and abstract issues as the Mueller report or his conversation with the president of Ukraine, which are enormously incriminating. But this can be recast in a false narrative, as he and others following him have done, largely because it is more or less indirect and abstract. But now, with the coronavirus followed upon by the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, these are physical, organic experiences, and they deal with sickness, death, and killing. They cannot be resisted or denied through a malignant normality, and American people tend, when confronted with illness and death and killing, they tend to look toward physicians as authorities, and they look toward critical perspectives on those who do the killing, in this case, police killing unarmed black people. This sequence, particularly of the coronavirus, and then the demonstrations about racism and killing are particularly vivid and clear because of the sickness and, again, the deaths that they portray. These cannot be manipulated. And for this reason, and for also the reason of an accrual, a building of recognition of Trump's lies and falsehoods, Trump is less and less received as someone who has control of reality or who owns reality. It's quite remarkable how far he has gone with false narratives built from this effort to own reality as supported by his followers. That's no longer possible where we look to our authorities to be physicians and scientists and others who observe 
and are critical of police brutality that results in death. And Trump continues what I call his solipsism, his self-contained reality, reality that is made up. But when coming from an American president, solipsism kills. It results in the deaths of many more people from the coronavirus, which he denies and rejects and periodically negates. And it also cannot in any way join in a vast national and very intense set of energies toward overcoming police violence toward minority groups and especially black people. So in these ways, the very concreteness, the relationship to death of these events undermines further and significantly and creates a really shift in Trump's claims to reality control or the ownership of reality. And that creates what I call a vicious circle in which there is increasing rejection of Trump's false reality, then increasing intensity and wildness in his falseness to even include Abe Lincoln as among those he has surpassed in what he's done for black people, and then increasing rejection of Trump and so on in this vicious circle. That's very hopeful for the country. At the same time, it's dangerous because Trump becomes wilder, is skillful still in his manipulations, and still has a certain capacity to maneuver within the media. So we can expect really rocky and dangerous times, certainly between now and the election. But it's hopeful for the country because of the increasing capacity to recognize Trump's claim to reality for what it is, false and full of lies, and to take steps toward reclaiming reality. And that's what I think the country is doing as it rejects Trump's reality and reclaims actual reality. I can say one more thing about reality. It's a term that's tossed about quite a bit. There are two kinds of reality. It's been studied over the ages, and it's hard to define. One is the more general reality that can be large visions and principles, such as the belief that democracy is the best or not the best form of government, or that God exists or does not. But the other is an immediate factual reality. I'm talking to you in a podcast today at this moment. That's an immediate factual reality. And when the president of a powerful country like the United States lives in a denial and rejection of factual reality, that country is in trouble. And in order to reclaim reality, one must expose that solipsistic reality for what it is and its dangers. Of course, Dr. Lifton made those observations about Trump's weakening hold on the national reality before his poll numbers took a nosedive. 
How tragic, however, that it took 150,000 deaths from COVID-19 before millions of our fellow citizens also recognized reality. One reason, in fact, we're in this horrific mess today is because Donald Trump cannot think beyond the next news cycle. Social psychologist and Stanford professor emeritus Philip Zimbardo has his own theory about why Trump is so psychologically incapable of planning ahead. A few years ago, I developed a scale that measures differences in the psychology of time perspective. The scale is called the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory, and it identifies six different types of individuals. And we've done lots of research around the world validating that scale. And so there's two ways to be past-oriented, two ways to be present, and two ways to be future. So the ideal for any leader is to have a positive future orientation, which simply means that everything you do is a platform where you're aware of future consequences and what you do now always has the vision of how will it play out in the future. If you're a present hedonist, you're like a child. You live in the moment. You live for excitement. You live for novelty. You live for fun. You never ever think about what I'm doing now, what is the consequence it has tomorrow or next year. And also you rarely base your statements or what you do on the past. So you live in that present bubble. And I'm arguing that Donald J. Trump is the most extreme form of present hedonism that I have ever seen in all my dozen years of observing people of different kinds. And it's, so he becomes a danger because uh, as president of the United States with all his enormous power, he just says things, does things in the moment and never thinks about the future consequences. Uh, we saw this in his dealing with the pandemic. People like that don't even listen to their experts. He has, has lots of experts around him who are giving him other advice. So Trump's psychological deficits prevent him from planning ahead or seeing anything in the world beyond himself. If that's not enough to scare the hell out of you, wait, there's more. Trump's psychological deficits also make him a bully. How bad a bully? Dr. Zimbardo, whom we just heard from, conducted one of the most famous experiments in psychology. It's known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. College students were randomly selected to be either prisoners or guards in a simulated prison. One standout finding of his study? The guards, who became guards merely by the flip of a coin, soon began to enforce authoritarian measures and subject some prisoners to psychological torture. Here's how Dr. Zimbardo compares Trump to the prison guards in his experiment. The interesting parallel is that I'm, I've been saying Trump is a, is a domineering, dominating, bullying prison guard if he were in my experiment. He's a bully because it comes out of this deep insecurity, knowing that there is no Donald Trump at the core. More on Trump the bully from Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Henry Friedman. He's such a bully that he doesn't even attempt to hide it. Uh, and he wants to bully people to be in a position of inferiority to him. You know, so look what he does with Biden. When Biden wears a mask or stays in his home, he belittles him. It's his need to destroy others. He has to destroy 
goodness. Uh, one of the reasons Obama is such a bete noir for him, as Obama is so much a kind of symbol of something that he needs to destroy, is because Obama had so much competence and goodness to him, and he can never do that. He He's disdainful of the excellent qualities that we saw in President Obama. He sees them as something that you would push over, that he would bully over. And I, I think it's got to do with maintaining the fact that he's the best. He's the most important uh, person in the room, and he, he counts. Psychologist Stephen Solds explains the origin of that bully behavior on the part of Donald Trump. Boys tend to be insecure. Using bullying is a way of dealing with that. It's changing it into its, into its opposite. This is an incredibly insecure person, I think. Dr. Souls is a clinical psychologist and director of the Social Justice and Human Rights Program at the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. He says that Trump gets something else out of being a bully. It's also a, a merger of that with, I think, with sadism. He gets pleasure in cruelty. He just exhibits in a way that most people in the public, I know enough not to do, that the, the pleasure that he gets in making people suffer, his mocking of, of reporters, the tweets are also part of the way of doing that. And Souls thinks Trump's sadism drives his response to police violence. I think he's a sadist. I think he actually identifies with police violence. When he spoke to the police chiefs, he recommended that they be more brutal. He can't condemn it because, in fact, he thinks it's great. He thinks that's the way you show. You dominate by beating people up and brutalizing them. And if some people die along the way, who cares? Because he doesn't feel anything. So now we have at least one psychologist describe Trump as a sadist. But here's another term you don't often hear associated with Donald Trump, paranoid. Harvard psychiatrist Henry Friedman explains. People have trouble understanding how to define what we call paranoia. People are more used to it in the delusional form of somebody thinks they're being followed by the FBI. But it has to do with seeing others as exaggeratedly hostile and dangerous to them. So when you look at something like his relationship to the press, or those unfortunate press conferences during the uh, COVID conferences, and he would attack them mercilessly as if they were doing something rude or to him. He'd say, you're so rude. And, you know, he was the one being rude. You could see it, and, but you could also see the projection that they were really seen by him as dangerously attacking him, even when they were asking questions that were softball and weren't even so difficult at all. Tell me how you would comfort the people who have lost people in this pandemic. Paranoid mind sees danger all over the place and also needs to erect an enemy. In this case, with Trump, it's illegal immigrants, it's Mexicans, it's women, it's lots of groups that he can project his hatred onto. And the fact is, it's so evident, is that he's the hater. He's a man who's filled with hatreds and vitriolic denunciation of everyone in special names. But he's always seeing it as coming at him from groups that really don't bear him any hostility. 
And also, it's not movable. It's, I try to explain to people, do you think if the Jews had gone to Hitler and said, oh, Mr. Hitler, you have to understand, we mean you no harm. We're just ordinary German citizens, and why don't you let us support you? You think he would have been able to see it in that light? No, the, the paranoid person cannot be moved away from his view of who the enemy is. This is particularly true when it comes to the next election, where his view that he is being in danger justifies for him doing whatever he does to skew the election or throw it out in his favor. And armed with Alan Dershowitz's argument, whatever the president does, if he thinks it's in the interest of the country, is, is a constitutional. You can just see what kind of confluence of actions we have to anticipate. As a person who can uh, use names to annihilate people, you know, Sleepy Joe, uh, etc. He obviously greatly fears anybody annihilating him, and he sees it in everything. And therefore, you know, when Nancy Pelosi says, I pray for him, uh, he says, oh, yeah, sure she does. If she prays for anything, it's for me to be dead. And, you know, he is extremely sensitive because challenges to his power are so disconcerting to him, disorganizing, you might say, but I think he always manages to come back and negate it in the same way that any information that he doesn't believe in. One of the amazing things was the way he said that the pandemic was a myth, was something the Democrats were using to attack him. I mean, the sensitivity to people saying, look, there's something coming at us that we have to be prepared for. And his saying, you're just faking it. In my chapter, I wrote about paranoid grandiosity, the combination of the two, because he is a powerful figure, but he has to constantly emphasize. And I thought in the in the midst of this COVID pandemic with so many people dying, I said that he's preening while others are dying. He would be in those conferences sort of bolstering himself, taking over, calling everything on how wonderful what he was doing. And he has to present how, how great he is. The journalists saw that something was wrong, but I could say grandiose paranoid character. And a grandiose paranoid character will continue to be grandiose paranoid and a character disorder and will wreak havoc. And one of the things I sensed, which has been confirmed, that the biggest contributor to anti-Trumpism is Trump because he's the gift that never stops giving. He gives and gives destructiveness and new meaning to destructiveness with almost any opportunity he's given. It's like the last two, the COVID and the police brutality. He didn't have to give us such a gift. He could have listened and just said, we gotta protect people from this illness, or we have to say that the police can't kill people because they're black, but he can't do that. And I felt that giving the public and journalists the terms grandiose paranoid character was necessary. And I only have them from psychiatry. I only have them from psychoanalysis and psychiatry. And I don't think I'm making a diagnosis of him. I'm giving descriptive terms to his behavior. So summing up, in the White House today, we have a narcissist, sadist, paranoid bully who can think of no one but himself, who cannot plan ahead, and who lives in his own world that is malignant and totally apart from rational reality. 
These mental health professionals have been desperate for three years to share their expertise with you, but they've been mainly shut out of the mainstream media by a mistaken loyalty to that Goldwater rule we talked about a little earlier. In the next episode of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump here on the Bill Press Pod, we'll talk about the origins of the Goldwater Rule and how it's been used to suppress professional expertise about the mental health of Donald Trump. It's shocking, but one organization, the American Psychiatric Association, has influenced the media to almost always reject psychiatrists explaining the mental deficiency of the President of the United States. You won't want to miss this exploration into the deliberate and dangerous suppression of evidence by the American Psychiatric Association. That's next week with the second installment of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, right here on The Bill Press Pod.